Hey, this is Jerry. Um, back recording an Intermediates podcast, mainly for my um, BU MassCom research classes. We kind of talked about examples of real experiments, but we didn't explicitly talk about the concepts from the textbook. So I wanted to use a couple minutes here to, uh, to clear up some of those big things and point out what I thought was pretty important stuff you guys might want to be aware of for the test. Um, there's a guide up on Blackboard to, uh, to help you follow along and fill in some of the blanks. You know, we read about surveys. The big thing there is that they don't really allow you to manipulate independent variables unless you get really creative. Um, you can do it a little bit. You guys write about online experiments, but there's your big benefit for experimental, uh, usually laboratory work, is that you can control and manipulate the independent variable. Um, when you look at the amount of research that's actually been conducted in MassCom using experimental design, it's only somewhere around uh, 10 to 20 percent of the studies. Um, and, and maybe for that reason, there's kind of this exclusivity that, that comes along with doing experimental work. You guys might even hear researchers and professors um, kind of advocate that if it's not experimental, uh, why bother doing it? And it's kind of this bias that it's uh, it's lofty and it's better than everything else. Not always the case, um, but certainly it may take more time and resources. Uh, one of the other things here, as you can see in the reading, uh, it's with a tightly designed experiment, you can start to tap into causality. It doesn't mean all experiments do it. Um, it doesn't mean even if you try to design uh, for a causal test that you're going to hit it. Um, they say it's not a statistics problem, it's not an uh, analysis problem, it's a design problem to try to get at causality. So typically you need three things in order to say one variable causes another. Uh, you need to show that the two variables are related, so a correlation. Uh, you need to show that there's a time order that one always comes before the other, and that second one always follows the first. And then third, you need to rule out third variable solutions. So you need to rule out the, the chance that there's something else that's really driving that correlation between those first two. Uh, so an example from a lot of textbooks is that if you look at when uh, people eat the most amount of ice cream and when the most amount of crimes are committed, you're going to see a correlation between ice cream eating and robberies. So would you say eating ice cream causes robberies or robberies cause ice cream eating? Well, it's actually, if you look at when it's hot, so it would seem that something to do with rising temperatures, you know, that's what's driving more ice cream eating, and people get more irritable, they commit more crime, right? So that would be the third variable solution or the, the um, extraneous variable that's actually driving that relationship. So really tricky for a researcher to say something causes something else. You, can, you have to hit all three of those, um, without question. So we don't see it all that often. Uh, make sure you're aware of those advantages of experimental design apart from causality. Um, and then as we get into some of the disadvantages, I actually saw this a lot in your four cues the past couple of weeks. You know, it is artificial to have somebody come into the lab. Uh, people are aware that they're being watched and they're reactive. So just by the act of measuring, we change things. Um, and then we typically have 
small samples in the lab, so it might be hard to generalize. Uh, people know they're being watched. We have a small amount of people, and we have them in an artificial setting. You know, it's kind of the trade-off with having all that control. Most experiments from ASCOM are going to use straightforward manipulation. Um, there's some really creative ones that use, use staged manipulation uh, in that they manipulate the environment kind of without the participants knowing, um, usually using some mild deceit. So here we see confederates, which are people who act like participants or just act like passers-by, but in reality they are the researchers or their students or hired actors. Uh, one of my favorite ones where they did this, an article by Stoneman and Brody way back in 1981. They wanted to see if um, advertising worked on kids, uh, particularly food advertisements. So they brought kids in with their parents. Some watched cartoons with commercials for food. Others just watched cartoons with no commercials. They filled out a bunch of measures. It looks like that's the experiment. And then when it was done, they told the parents, well, we're going to give you some money to spend at the local grocery store um, if you want to take your kid and go over there and do your shopping. Uh, unrelated to the study, wink, wink. Uh, so then they went, and in fact, the people working at the grocery store weren't actually workers. They were trained observers. So they were confederates there watching how often the kids asked for the foods they saw in the commercials um, how much they fought, how the parents managed that, so they're able to collect all this data um, in disguise. And kind of a, an interesting staged manipulation. There's a bunch more out there. Um, most experiments from ASCOM are going to end up exposing people to different conditions, treatment, control, maybe multiple treatments, and then have them fill out survey measures in the lab. Uh, whether it's pen and paper or on a computer. Um, it's really interesting, kind of a, a degree of difficulty higher uh, when you look at physiological measures. So when they start looking at what's going on in the body, whether that's measuring arousal and excitement by something like galvanic skin response or blood pressure or by uh, special cameras tracking the eyes, you know, that... It's kind of another step to say, well, they filled out the surveys this way, plus we had these physiological measures uh, a little bit more convincing. So when we see those, um, it, it always rings a little bell in my mind uh, that it's, it gives us something else. It gives us another degree of confidence. We might talk more about some of those uh, in the coming weeks. Um, you should probably be aware of the considerations of experimental design on page 254. And then something that was really popular in the four Qs, uh, we're talking about the different types of experimental design from post-test only to pre-test post-test to the Solomon Four group. Uh, the, the, quick, the quick and dirty explanation of this, the Solomon Four group is always best. I've never seen one. Uh, it would be the ideal because it captures everything, but it also means you need to have four different groups, you need to have a whole lot of time, a whole lot of subjects to put them in those four groups, and a whole lot of money. So in actuality, I, I don't see that one in practice. Um, you know, the post-test is, is probably most common, uh, and you know, it's going to be great if you have random assignment to those different groups. Um, but pre-test, post-test, 
you know, that lets you say that here was a score at baseline, then we introduced the treatment, and then we did the post-test. So you can say something about the change there. Um, you can even go back and check to see if your random assignment worked uh, because you have the pretest data. The catch is if you're doing pretest, post-test, um, you've got to figure out how to measure that variable twice. And does measuring it twice change the second one? Um, are, are you using the same exact questions? Are you using similar questions? Um, kind of how would the pretest affect the post-test? Um, but those are the two most common. As I said, Solomon 4 group, that's going to be the answer uh, on every test and every methods class you would ever take, if you take any more, um, as having the best one and the most control. But in, in reality, uh, like I said, I've not actually seen one happen. Um, I think the last thing we'll talk about, we might have touched upon this in class briefly, the, the field experiment as being really unique because now you move things out of the lab and out into the real world you, know, you can boost external validity you know you remove that artificiality take people out of a dingy academic room or corporate room and put them on the couch or in the movie theater so you gain external validity but you lose control um, so we may have talked about the great american values test as one where um, researchers uh, the the Balrokeeches and others worked with uh, Hollywood talent to actually make a TV show that aired in some markets in Washington uh, where the actors in the show pushed certain American values and then they surveyed people in those areas afterwards, figured out if they valued those same things that the hosts were pushing, how much, um, and then of course if they watched the show and how much and they found people that watched the show valued those things the hosts were pushing. Um, and on top of doing the survey or research, they also said, well, if, uh, if you're willing to donate um, your money, that's a really good indicator that you really value these things. So they teamed up with a charity, uh, an environmental charity. It just so happens uh, Care for the Environment was one of those values they pushed. And they looked to see how much people gave, and it turned out that if they watched the show and heard the host say, you should value the environment, they gave more. Um, so on top of the survey stuff, they actually had a behavioral measure that people valued these things more. So pretty rare we see those. Uh, there's also a fun one out there. If you are a fan of Friends, uh, probably not real time, but maybe in rerun, um, there's a famous episode where uh, Rachel finds out she's pregnant with Ross's baby, spoiler alert, and uh, and Ross flips out because, well, they used the condom. And they do this running gag throughout the show with multiple characters where uh, he says, well, I thought condoms were 100% effective, and, and Rachel says, no, if you look on the box, it says only 99, and, and Ross flips out, and then later Joey does the same gag. So they're all flipping out about learning that condoms are only 99% effective at... Uh, at keeping you from getting pregnant. And researchers found out that episode was coming down the pipes and actually collected data in the field for when it ran and then when it reran. And what they found was that um, teenagers who saw the show were more likely to talk to their parents about sex and ask about condom efficiency. So they actually were able to get that in the real world and, and see, and 
that one show built for comedy um, actually had a really profound effect uh, where the, the kids who saw it, the teenagers saw it, said they talked to their parents about sex. Um, whenever I talk about that in class, I, I ask people if you initiated a talk about sex with your parents, and it's almost zero, um, but it was something like 30% uh, of, of teenagers sampled. Um, I'm probably forgetting the exact number, but some, some huge statistic of people who said they initiated the talk with their parents after watching that episode. So pretty interesting uh, and a fun example of a field experiment and some funny clips from friends you can find on YouTube too. Um, so that takes care of some of the major things I wanted to hit on. Maybe we, we talked about them in the Tuesday and Wednesday night classes a little bit, um, but I wanted to give you some supplemental material here. Um, that's it, and I'll catch you guys in class unless you're just listening to this for fun and not part of the class, which I can't really imagine why you do that, but <laughs> uh, that's it.